Uh, welcome everyone to the April Variant Perception Monthly Client Call. Um, so after some very good feedback from last month, uh, the, the client call we did last month, I think we're going to try and stick with a similar kind of format this time around. Um, so, you know, initially I'll probably spend five minutes talking about the kind of key changes versus last month, um, the kind of top of mind charts and themes for us. And then uh, what we've done a bit differently this month is we've been sourcing various um, kind of client questions uh, to kind of discuss on the call. So I think going forward, we'll just randomize the clients we reach out to. And um, and, and the pleasant surprise has been we have, we've been inundated with questions. So I've, I've kind of um, prioritized and we have quite a few different slides where we try to address the, the kind of questions in, in general um, later on. And then, um, so, so hopefully after that, there'll be some room for discussion. Um, I wanted to also introduce everyone to kind of uh, Walter Cavanaugh, who's uh, you know part of the analyst team. You know, I'm extremely excited that Walter's uh, joined VP. You know, he's he's kind of going to be um, a key part of the the efforts that we're going to to try and really improve the product, um, really start productionizing a lot of the tools and data and making it accessible to clients to help you um, kind of address your own questions depending on asset class and geographies. I think uh, you know the, the clients who get the most value from what we do are the people that are really interacting a lot with the analysts, but obviously it's not fully scalable. And often we as analysts are almost like a blocker for your ability to access our indicators and data and the relevant information. So, you know, that's kind of a very exciting kind of um, uh, product improvement, you know, kind of expansion, if you like, that, that we're working on. And so um, with that, I'll, I'll just start on uh, slide two. So in terms of the key changes uh, versus last month, um, so what happened is um, we had the initial Fed hike and obviously the kind of um, news around it. Um, the main takeaway is that the Fed has been um, more hawkish than um, expected. And uh, literally yesterday after, with the Fed minutes, there, there's now a little bit more clarity on the Fed balance sheets. But in our mind, this really delays our buy the rumor kind of bond roadmap that we had from the beginning of the year. The original idea was that yield curves would bear flatten, which which kind of has been the case, but that in absolute terms, yields tend to peak on the first hike in terms of the historical cycles. However, this time around, given the Fed's kind of full hawkishness and the scope for them to continue surprising on, on the on, on the kind of upside in terms of hawkishness, we still think we're in this window of vulnerability. And so at the earliest, it's going to be, um, you know, come the May meeting when they probably do 50-bit hike, when they, you know, follow through on the balance sheet, um, reduction, and then we start to see headline inflation start to roll over a little bit. Again, I'm not saying it's going back to two, but you know, we, you know, in terms of second derivative, it turns negative. Then that might start um, creating some scope for kind of buy the dip to come back in fixed income, so you get the kind of yield peak. Um, so, so that's kind of the the, the main shift. Um, otherwise, you know, what other things that we're watching for? Still, we're not getting the China reflation. China's announced the 5.5 GDP target, which is on the higher end. That was kind of our roadmap again coming in, and we thought this would facilitate uh, more aggressive easing in China. But the problem is, um, you know, COVID policy still seems to be the, the most important factor, right? It's kind of policy supremacy in a way, and, and pursuing zero COVID. And at least, you know, I, you know, I do follow Chinese media, and, you know, also, you know, kind of watch Chinese shows and, and things like that. And yeah, it still seems to be the sense of national pride in, in, in pursuing zero COVID policy. It's probably not as at least in how it plays it domestically, it doesn't seem to be this, you know, policy that doesn't seem to make sense, right? It still seems to be broadly something that people want to go along with. So, again, until that shifts, you know, we think China is more a stabilization 
story, right? Certainly things are no longer going to deteriorate as much, but, you know, the industrial economy in China remains in recession. And, you know, until you really alleviate the COVID policies, there's no real room to gain traction in terms of genuine stimulus, right? So consumer confidence is going to be weak. Consumption, these things are going to be weak. So even if you want to cut rates and stuff, it's not going to work. The, the, the big policy lever remains that they need to focus on infrastructure. But again, if you look at the, the bond quotas, it's no different to last year. So far, it's kind of just tracking. There's not necessarily a step up uh, in terms of kind of the um, the infrastructure and stimulus spend. I mean, there's some big numbers thrown around, but again, I think we just have to see where they come through in the data. That's been the disappointing thing about the whole of 2022, where China's been talking about easing, and we thought it would ease more, and we see in the data. But so far, it's been more talk, and we're not really seeing it in the data. And so when you put these together. You know, we've obviously made a shift to be a bit turn a bit more cautious on risk assets and to try and take advantage of kind of values to start reducing equity overweight. Um, you know, our O4 analogy coming in in terms of a commodity super cycle backdrop, China reflation that offsets kind of tightening liquidity from the Fed hiking cycle. That's that's not really playing out in in the kind of right proportions that we thought. Right, normally we thought there'd be offset. Instead, what we really have at this point is a lot more aggressive Fed weaker China reflation and the commodity super cycle um, driving recycling of kind of current account surpluses back into the US, that's been complicated by the Russia war, the sanctions, and, and you know, the uncertainty about where those kind of commodity surplus dollars can go. So it just it's just a cloudy environment. And when you have this cloudy environment, whilst our cyclical liquidity indicators are very, very weak, then it kind of makes sense to us that we should um, kind of take a step back, be a bit more cautious. Uh, in terms of positioning. So overall, I think w right now we would advocate um, in terms of thinking out the next six months is to be um, underweight bond still, overweight cash, and broadly neutral on equities. The reason we're just saying neutral on equities is because there's usually always something to buy, right? And there's something to, to kind of overweight, underweight within the allocation. And because our U.S. recession models haven't triggered yet, we don't want to give an overly bearish sense, right? Also in, the, in the grand scheme of things, equity is still probably better in aggregate offer better value than bonds. So we don't want to give too um, too negative of your equities with the idea that you know bonds look too attractive. Um, having said all that, I do think this that potentially at some point in Q2 we'll get the, the fixed income kind of yield peak. So there should be a tactical kind of three to three, maybe six months opportunity to buy the dip on fixed income and to ride it back up for a trade. But obviously structurally, you know, there's lots of reasons to, to kind of still doubt fixed income allocations. Um, so the, the last point I wanted to make here in terms of um, on slide two was the, the final point. Um, I, I think we just want to take every opportunity to emphasize that the way we do analysis over three different time horizons, you know, the tactical context is the next one to three months. This is heavily driven by price and trading signal. Then we have kind of cyclical outlook, which is the next six to 12 months. This is heavily driven by leading the case of the growth and liquidity. And then we kind of have the two to three year structural story. Right, so this, this involves things like the capital cycle report, the thematic stuff we do where, you know, we're structurally bullish on home builders, even though the cyclicals, you know, sucks right now. You know, stuff like, you know, we're structurally bullish on inflation, even if cyclically we think we might be at peak. So I think that's just a very important framing to explain our ideas, because I think we still are struggling with um, clients not getting the full value or getting the full context of what we're trying to say when we don't, when we're not explicit on these horizons. So I think this is something we're going to increasingly try to do um, go, going forward. So on slide three, again, just in terms of the key cyclical charts, the main thing I will highlight here is if you look at the top left, the red line, our China LEI 
is stable, but again, it hasn't had that inflection point up, whilst the US and Europe are still going down. Um, and the, the top middle chart here, excess liquidity went negative last month and has kept dropping, so this is a pretty bad sign. And then if we look at BCFI index, again, it's pretty low. We've just plotted against the put right index. Um, so essentially, you know, the, the total return from selling puts. But again, it's just a way to give give you a sense of is this a good environment to be aggressively taking risk or not? And in our view, it's not. So growth is slowing, access liquidity is poor. Now, the the one thing that we are somewhat divergent with the, the rest of with a lot of white scale news is on the recession risk. So here we would emphasize that we don't want to look at any one input for recession. You know, it's not not all oil price surges lead to a recession. There's a lot of false positives. And when you get your curve inversions on, say, twos, tens, the lead is very variable, right? It can be as short as six months, but it could be as long as two years before the recession hits. So again, in practical terms, it's probably not an exact action point, but it does give you a sense that the economic cycle is more mature. But obviously, if you have another two years of a late cycle economy that isn't in recession, that obviously requires a different asset allocation um, than if you think a recession is imminent. So this is why we build our recession models as regime shifts. So in the left chart here, you can kind of see, um, this is probably the cleanest way we can show it, where our recession model is essentially 12 different sub-recession models that each can switch on or off. So that's what the red line in the bottom left chart here sees, right? And roughly, you can think about if half the models switch on, that's kind of a recession. But then what we can then do is build some statistical techniques around it, for example, like run a lasso uh, model on top that can convert those ones and zeros into kind of a, a probability. Um, so and so you can see that right now, um, you know, the, the probability is basically zero, and this has been helpful to avoid some of the kind of false positives that might have been during the 2010s, during some of the previous kind of mid cycle slowdown scares. Um, and so, you know, overall, we think this is we would probably be thinking about positioning for a kind of 2010, 11, or 2018 style mid cycle slowdown, um, but based on what we can see right now, rather than trying to get even more defensive. Um, now, the the one the, the the complicating factor today is on top of these cyclical dynamics, we have a lot of pandemic legacy one-off factors that are truly one-off, but they're persisting right now. So, for example, the bull effect is something obviously we've been kind of banging on about for the past six months, and then once again, we still see in the bottom middle chart here, durable goods consumption remains pretty very very high, it's still trending higher. So, new goods orders are still broadly trending higher. Um, and then durable goods inventory is also trending higher. So all these three, uh, three things are still trending higher. Um, this is kind of the mother of all inventory cycles, right? So, you know, COVID had an extreme kind of inventory drawdown and then coming out of COVID on top of a cyclical inventory rebuild, you kind of have, um, you know, a structural need to increase inventories because just in time supply chain, it turns out doesn't work. Coming out of COVID, you have a lot more US-China tensions. So there's a need to put a lot more CapEx and to build out of kind of different supply chains. Um, on top of that, right? So there's a lot of these factors that's causing this pull forward of demand for industrial link stuff. So again, this would suggest that we'll probably be at an industrial peak longer um, than like a normal business cycle this time around. Obviously this has implications for kind of the commodity super cycle season, a lot of those things where it can probably sustain at a higher level um, compared to a normal cycle. And finally, the, the right-hand chart here is the, uh, the the Fed's own kind of yield curve recession indicator. So you know, every time kind of, you know, obviously we had the two tens inversion um, recently, and we also had in 18. And both times when the curves inverted, the Fed's come out saying, oh, that's a bad recession predictor. This is what you should watch. And so what the Fed uses is a, it's basically the three months 
spot and the three months, 18 months forward curve, right? And that's why I plotted here. So you can see this is extremely steep right now. And so based on their work, they're saying there's no recession. So because the Fed made such a big deal about it, you know, we just want to flag it for clients that we can at least track this to get a sense of how the Fed's thinking about recession risk and, you know, whether they need to back off or not. So, so the main message right now is that there's basically very little excuse for the Fed to back off. You know, the economy is fine in, in their eyes, right? And, and actually in, on our models as well. So on slide four, just emphasizing some of the tactical things. Um, so again, now this is kind of next one to three months, right? The previous one is more the context of the next six to 12. Now we're getting more specifically into trade expressions or how to kind of, whether we need to shift portfolios or not. Um, so broadly speaking, our tactical trading models still suggest yields should be going higher. So bond selling off on a tactical context and again, bearish on equities. Now, I do think the scope for a short covering uh, rally is still quite strong because the bottom middle chart here shows the count of our various buy signals and we have a lot of buy signals right now. And typically these have quite good back tests once it's, again, one, two, three months forward returns. So it's saying that, you know, Pete, there was probably too much de-risking, hedge fund growth was reduced, um, you know, people got too bearish. So there's scope for uh, um, like a decent short squeeze kind of rally. But, you know, in our mind, this is the kind of rally we would sell into because of the previous concerns we flagged in terms of cyclical context. Um, and in terms of hedging as well, the top right-hand chart here shows the one-month skews, 9110, for kind of the main U.S. indices. You can see that the lines actually have dropped down a decent bit. So that kind of suggests this isn't a terrible level to kind of think about hedging. The fact that skews come off, you know, it's a good sign, right? It gives, gives you, it means them, you, know, you hopefully get a bit more juice out of putting on some colors or kind of, kind of overlays, right? Um, or even Delta, thinking about Delta replacement um, kind, of, kind of trades right now makes a lot of sense. Um, the bottom right-hand chart is an example of why we consider, you know, good Delta replacement trades to put on this kind of environment where overall, you know, we're pretty cautious on equities, but that's not necessarily a recession. There's these pandemic one-offs that's complicating things. So really what you want to do is you want to maintain some exposure to the upside still, but reduce, um, obviously, try and cut off some of your downside, but obviously because vol is still, it's not, it's not expensive, but not super cheap, right? You want to look for alternative ways to do this. And so this is why I think is very good, where you do very long dated core replacement. So the bottom right-hand chart is why priced up is like a five-year Eurostocks core option at the money. And so, and you can see like the upfront cost here is only about 10% of the notional. So you basically mean 10% to maintain a lot of potential upside and obviously help helping cut off some of your, your downside exposure with the core replacement. The reason these trades work well is because we're living in an environment where dividend yields are quite high and bond yields, especially in Europe, are very low. So the forward, especially if you go for the right, is super low. Then obviously if the forwards are low, the other money for the kind of the longer dated core options are very low. So, so effectively you get this, so you get the, the benefit of that, right? And this is kind of the same trade as the yield curve caps idea that we've been talking about um, on, on the fixed income side. It's kind of analogous on the equity side. And so just, just going on to the fixed income, the one thing we would know is how extreme the current environment is between kind of where um, fixed income vol is, obviously we're just using move as a proxy and what happens to the curve. Typically, there's actually a positive correlation uh, between fixed income volatility and the yield curve. And the reason being that when the curve supersedes, there's in theory a lot of different ways the curve can move to kind of realize the forward. Um, so you've got a very extreme divergence today. So again, this is the kind of thing that in my mind, it's, you know, one of these things is going to break, right? I, either, either we maybe at some point get the curve steepening or the ball is kind of a bit too expensive. Um, Obviously, I don't know how it's going to play out, because um, you know, but what I would say is when I look at it, I think the risk reward is pretty good for looking at kind of 
um, yield curve caps again, right? Two tens of these kind of things because again, just how low the forward is and how how, how cheap the break evens are. Um, and again, when we look at stuff like this, if we truly get the kind of inflation scare that drives term premium and inflation expectations higher, then obviously the long end also has scope to move up. So again, this would speak to some of the really long dated inflation tail hedges we talked about last year. So things like you know ten year twenty ten year twenty year swap options and these kind of things, right? Maybe strike like four percent, right? These kind of levels that. You know, it's going to give you a lot of convexity for hopefully not that much downside. Um, so this is kind of tactically how we would be thinking about kind of fixed income and equities right now. And so slide five, just a quick summary of the, the main shifts we did in last allocation, right? So the main one is turning a bit more cautious um, on risk assets overall. Right. And so, so yeah. Okay, that's that's very useful and interesting. I've, I have a ton of questions now after that, but. Maybe it's better if we do the client questions first. Um, yeah. Given that they sent us in some good questions, and then we can circle back to yeah. my questions based on those first three slides. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do that. You know, I, I'm genuinely very, very happy and pleasantly surprised at just the sheer amount of client questions and, and the quality. Yeah. I mean, so, so, <laughs> although, although the tone of sound, I think, is is quite aggressive as well. So, uh, so we'll get to some of these. Um, <laughs> We got a lot of really good so, questions yeah, so this time, though, compared, to, yeah. compared to the last so I've tried to group these. There's a bit of overlap, so I've tried to group it. So the first one is define liquidity, because obviously we talk about tightening liquidity. So the key thing we want to emphasize is I think excess liquidity is probably the main one in terms of quantifying it. So this is real, this is basically nominal narrow money growth, i.e. M1 growth, minus inflation, minus economic growth. So the idea here is what is the real economy eating up in terms of nominal money growth, right? How much is needed for the economy? How much is needed for inflation? And generally what's left over goes into uh, asset markets. So right now what we're seeing is that there's basically no excess liquidity. So the real economy is probably gonna be fine. Inflation and economic activity is basically absorbing all the money. So there's nothing left over for asset prices. So we're in the kind of a more vulnerable environment for asset prices. Um, this is a, a quantity idea. The BCFI is a diffusion idea. So the idea is that this is obviously only counting whether central banks are hiking or hiking rates or cutting rates. So this is particularly sensitive indicator and designed to move faster. And so between kind of excess liquidity and BCFI is the main way we define liquidity. And we've tested this. You know, we've run various PCA dimension reduction analysis on how different factors, macro factors work. And these things are consistently in terms of maintaining their loadings and give you a good sense of where we are. So that's why we generally focus on this. Um, there was some concern about why do we not use bank loan growth and, and various things like that. So in general, loan growth is a lagging indicator, and you can kind of sense it a little bit here on the bottom right chart. By the time you see total loan growth up, like all the activity linked to it most likely happens. So the way uh, the credit cycle generally works is that the supply of credit tends to lead demand. So if you look at the bottom right-hand chart here, bank lending standards have a six-month lead on loan demand. So when banks ease lending standards, they'll find a way to funnel that loan capacity out and then eventually loan growth picks up. So by, and then by the time you see loan growth picks up, you know, the, the, you know, all the stuff linked to it has already happened. So it's really not, um, um, not leading per se, but it's just a confirmation sign. Um, and the top right-hand chart here is another way we use total credit growth. So again, we're looking at second derivatives and we use it alongside kind of fiscal policy stimulus. So again, we use it as a second derivative just to kind of confirm or give us a sense of what's going on in terms of year on year. But in terms of like what critically matters is basically access to creating and BCFI. So again, going back to kind of the principal component dimension reduction, in terms of the main principal component of liquidity is basically these two. Now, what's interesting, the second component tends to be yield curve and credit spreads, which kind of obviously the market implied a bit more. So that's why, again, we would 
corroborate by looking at credit spreads and yield curve yeah. as a kind of market confirmation signal. So, so that's kind of how we would look at liquidity, right? It's excess liquidity, DCFI, and then high yield credit spreads, say, and just um, shape of the yield curve. Um, just conscious of time here, we had a lot of questions actually on US consumer. Um, so we did put this in the LIW report. The main thing I would emphasize is the, the Uni University of Michigan sentiment survey is really, really bad right now. So everyone's very worried about recession. And the narrative is obviously that inflation is biting, consumers really struggling to deal with it. And so, you know, everyone's preparing for a recession. However, other than this one indicator, a lot of things we look at being surprisingly resilient. If you look at economic surprises on things like retail sales, wholesale, you know, that's been recovering. A lot of these higher frequency surveys that we originally flagged in January as showing stress, they've all kind of leveled out, right? So if you look at, you know, stress related to energy bills, this top middle chart, it's kind of come off a bit. Um, you know, back then when we flagged it in January, the, the kind of concerns around COVID, that's all come off the top right-hand chart here. If we look at households' ability to meet spending needs out of income, that's actually, obviously we had this tick down, but broadly it's, it's at a reasonable level, right? It shows that people are getting jobs. In the US, we know employment levels are roughly back to pre-pandemic, so people can get jobs, they can you know, finance their spending needs. And yeah, in terms of stress linked to people who can't pay their rent or mortgage, again, we saw this kind of initial jump at the start of the year, the, the bottom middle chart here where the lines jump up, and now they've all again come off. And so th this is what I really like is we're actually breaking down a little bit based on kind of lower income. So again, it's kind of suggesting that was a bit of stress, but it's not really pervasive as yet. And just as a reminder, the bottom right-hand chart is kind of the kind of whole consumer balance sheet argument, right? Where across the income spectrum out of the pandemic, net worth has actually gone up and creating a bit of a cushion, cushion to absorb some of these um, uh, kind of rising cost of living. So again, as of right now, for sure, we should be laser focused on the consumer. It is clearly a risk to inflation, but other than the Michigan survey, actually most of the stuff we, we try isn't that bad. So I think that's, um, that, that's quite a, a weird thing that's going on right now. Uh, linked to that, we had a question on the, on the Eurozone consumer. So again, in, the, in Europe, there's kind of less good high frequency data. So the main thing I would flag is kind of the monthly consumer confidence surveys. And so broadly speaking, yeah, you know, things have gotten a heck of a lot more bearish if you look at the, the kind of intentions to buy stuff. And um, so Europe, in theory, also has this saved up excess saving in the top right hand chart um, out of the pandemic, right, that people should have saved up a bit. And Europe is also seeing kind of employment levels recover back to kind of pre-pandemic levels. Um, but we don't see much of a shift in kind of, um, if you look at the bottom middle chart here in terms of retail sales, economic surprises, and really Europe is more of a kind of supply side shock at this point. So if we actually, so I, I would just say that the Eurozone consumer looks vulnerable based on these surveys um, and these excess saving charts obviously quarterly in Europe. So you update, update less often, so it might not be as good. Um, but the one concerning thing is on, on Eurozone recession is this top middle chart here, right? So if you look at the ZOO survey for economic expectations, obviously on the back of the, the, uh, the, the Ukraine war, it's been like a you know, extreme collapse, right? And every time we've been down here, historically, it has been a recession. If we look at our recession models, um, it's been flagging a lot of simultaneous stress. Now, we have to make an experimental version to make it daily frequency. Um, so the issue with that is we have to project forward the hard data in Europe. But obviously, as the hard data actually gets updated in real time, we then threw that up. So actually, the hard data stress in Europe has reduced a little bit from when we started looking at this in mid-month. Um, so as of right now, I would say Europe is pretty vulnerable to recession. It will kind of depend how the, um, how the war plays out. But coming in, Europe is really not set up to weather a supply-side shock well. So if you look at the, the bottom left-hand chart, leading the case is already very weak, even before the war coming in. 
Um, and obviously, we can see just the, the absurd magnitude of the surge in commodity price in Europe, right? So in the bottom, in the right-hand chart here, if you look at the Hamburg Institute commodity prices, I mean, th this is just unprecedented in terms of how big these commodity price surges are. And obviously, we see the surge in kind of eurozone um, gasoline um, costs as well. So, yeah, I mean, even I, d I don't think we can say for sure Europe is necessarily already in recession. But if you look, it's clearly much worse outlook than, than the U.S. So in terms of positioning for relative outperformance in the U.S., um, you know, I think that makes a ton of sense. In terms of where to put hedges on, you know, Europe probably makes the most sense as, as the most downside, right, if we to, to truly get risk off. So that's probably how I would interpret it. Um, now, in theory, the ECB is really stuck in a hard place as well, right, because obviously it's a supply-side shock, but it kind of suggests maybe there's some scope for the ECB to try and do something about it, although obviously it's not obvious how. But... Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, th things look look pretty bad. I would say Europe is much higher risk right now. So you, uh, you, don't think, uh, you don't think the ECB um, potentially lowering rates will solve the uh, energy crisis? Well, I mean, the, the scary thing is is the kind of feedback loops we see in emerging markets, right? Where policymakers yeah. respond to shortage by subsidizing yeah. people, which is which is like crazy, obviously, but but happens. Right, or we just get another lockdown, right? Like these are all terrible outcomes to help. I mean, the lockdown this time would energy. be, I guess, based on kind of energy rationing, right? I mean, that would be yeah. the. So I just wanted to say one thing on the on the last chart that you were on, um, that chart on the left, uh, the bottom left, it kind of suggests that Europe was heading into kind of a not a recession, but a, a growth downturn even before this started, right? So that's not even yeah. being picked up in this chart yet. Yeah. What? Yeah, I think Europe was probably uniquely badly placed to, to face a supply side shock. And, and obviously we're getting one. Uh, so next we had, a, we had a question on how to think about rising yields and how it drives um, sector and factor performance. Um, so I think the way we would address it is by breaking down the yield moves into different regimes. Because obviously when yields go up, it could be because nominal yields are up or real yields are up, whether it could be because people think growth is picking up or because uh, policy is tightening. And so those are different drivers. So the way we can break it down is by looking at what's the primary driver of rising yields. Is it rate expectations or is it term premium? And so this is a, a, a regime model we did um, and the last year as well that we flagged. So, and when you break it down by factor, you can get a lot of fairly intuitive answers out. So. The red box kind of highlights where we are today. Today, we have rate expectations driving rates higher, which is, you can see in the top right, it's generally the, the kind of worst regime um, because usually term premium rising implies steepening yield curve based, and it's usually the good kind of steepening based on the fact that people think growth is going to pick up. So in general, if you look at a lot of these charts, the, the best performing um, areas are usually either term premium drives rates higher, i.e. curve steepening because people are optimistic on growth, or the other one is rate expectations driving rates lower, i.e. lower discount rate, boosting kind of growth stocks, right? And so this is the kind of thing you see in the top left table here, where again, rate expectations going lower is kind of like, okay, we're in a low growth environment, it's secular stagnation, central banks in the lower rates. This is fantastic for growth stocks because they have growth and the discount rate goes lower. And so that, you know, that's when they perform the best, but we're not in that regime right now. Um, the other thing I will highlight is the bottom right, where leverage performs very poorly in the current regime we're in. Um, and the kind of um, and, and by the way, for most of 2021, we were in the top regime, right? 2021 was term premium driving rate higher regime, um, mainly because term premium was so bad in 2020, right? So we're generally looking at the year-on-year -year changes. 
and they're looking at the forward returns. So that, that's kind of why I think in, in 21, you had the value outperformance, you had the six o'clock performance. And now we've shifted regimes. Going to, I think the outlook is much more, much more mixed. Um, so it really depends on what happens from here with, with Fed policy. Um, you know, as we've been flagging, potentially, if they are really aggressive on balance sheet drawdown and really flood the, the private sector with, with uh, supply, Obviously, they haven't said that, right? But they, they've announced a fairly aggressive balance sheet drawdown, but not necessarily insane. But, um, you know, there's still room for them to turn up more hawkish if the headline CPI data is still bad for the next two months, right? So if they're really aggressive in drawing that balance sheet, then that could actually steepen the curve um, because the Fed had such a big suppressing impact on the curve with, with their holdings. Um, so again, that could potentially shift this regime. But as of right now, you know, we're in, the, in kind of a, a bad regime where the only thing that really performs well is the bottom left here, right? Quality names, profitable companies. Everything else probably you know, ha is going to be facing headwinds. Um, the 11 is just translating that into sectors a little bit. So again, hopefully the explanation is somewhat intuitive. So the top left shows that the current regime is bad for tech. It, it's not the best for tech kind of or consumer discretionaries in terms of these, these companies that are implicitly higher quality, but also has higher duration exposure because the valuations are higher. Um, and you know, this is generally a bad environment um, to be to play defense, really. Um, surprisingly, financials also isn't necessarily the best in the current environment. Again, banks do best when yields go up, curve steepen, but the environment, but the economic growth is good. So right now, the, the kind of message from the the um, fixed income market that yield um, yield being higher, but growth isn't necessarily good. So it's not all necessarily the best for financials either. So again, this just all feeds into the kind of slightly slightly more equity caution kind of kind of tone, I, I would say. Um, so we also had a question on um, China's PB, the PBOC announcement, how to think about liquidity in China. You know, it, it, when are we at a turning point yet? And the short answer is no. Um, if we look at the bottom left here, the, the, the Chinese fiscal and credit policy stimulus, right? So analogous to the previous stimulus chart, the second derivative, it's still negative. It's getting a bit better, but it's, it's not quite there. You know, what I, what I really want to see, we want to see the bottom right-hand chart, right? Like total domestic credits, claims on non-bank financial institutions, these things really start to go up. This is a very good reflection of liquidity and, and shadow finance. And we want to see this top middle chart pick up as well, right? I.e. the black line in particular. If China is really serious about hitting their 5.5% GDP target in their command and control economy, the obvious lever to pull is basically infrastructure. And to finance it, they usually issue more local government bonds and give, give local government bonds more kind of GDP targets. So if this picks up, that would be a good sign. As of right now, this is an open-ended question, but so far the quota is the same as last year, basically, and that there's no real change in the rate of issuance. It's still kind of uh, there, you know, there, thereabouts. Um, and obviously, because COVID policy is not zero, COVID still remains the issue. This is also why, you know, we, we we're less confident in that 04 reflation scenario than before. Yeah, slide 13. So I think um, uh, we've been ridiculed somewhat for our um, home builder uh, thesis. British home builders thesis. So again, I think this is where we need to emphasize the different time horizons. For sure, so far the trade's not worked. I think what what we got wrong, what we were caught off guard by, was the the surge in mortgage yields. Because originally coming in, I would have thought if our base case was that the curve was going to massively flatten, and most um, people in the housing market have locked in their refinancing rates, it, it normally isn't as big an impact. I think what's been a bit shocking is how aggressively mortgage spreads have widened even before the Fed started reducing MBS holdings. That's the top left chart here. So we can kind of break down the, the, the widening in mortgage spreads into kind of the secondary market and the primary. So the primary market is a reflection of how profitable it is for banks to issue, and that's still fine. That's not shifted. It's really secondary market repricing is just massively widened out. 
Um, so, yeah, I think that's the main thing that we didn't see coming. And clearly, this is a, a very bad sign cyclically for, for, for housing. And this obviously links to shelter CPI peaking and so forth. However, if you ask us about when we write thematic reports and we have these two to three reviews, and when we say the report was, you know, use a cyclical downturn to buy into it, I still, I still like believe in that. You know, the valuations now are, are at pretty low levels. Obviously, you can see in the bottom left, you know, in terms of analyst revisions, we're not there yet, right? The analyst earnings revisions are very high. The, the stocks have sold off, but we're trading on like low single digits across most home builder stocks. And so if we just get any kind of stabilization and we're not in recession, there's scope to, re, to re, rebound, right? So, you know, if we get like a, this kind of 2019 example, right? Or like a, you know, 2016 style or 2014 style, and it's not actually a recession, then there's scope for these things to kind of um, re-rate a little bit, right? Or for these companies to potentially buy back shares. So, um, you know, overall, the, the core thesis, I think, is still valid. I, I still think we, the U.S. needs to build a lot more housing based on the bottom right-hand chart. Housing starts versus total households is still low. And in terms of, again, obviously, this data is not the most timely, but if you look at home builder cancellation rates, it's still pretty low. In terms of the quarterly backlog of orders, it is, you know, the top middle chart is rolling over, but it's still at a reasonably high level, obviously somewhat comparable to the previous housing bubble in the kind of mid to late 2000s. But overall, I would say is if we can sustain it for, for a while, the demand, I think, still is probably going to be there because even though mortgage rates are higher, banks have loosened less mortgage lending standards. And if we truly write the consumer's not, the consumer balance is still okay, then, and you, and you have an ability to actually get a mortgage um, and your face is 8% inflation and you look at what real assets you have easy access to and how do you kind of, you know, change your own personal balance sheet, it still probably does make sense for people to think about getting exposure to housing. Um, looking at the originate mortgage origination data, for sure, refinancing activity has obviously dropped off a cliff because no, nobody's refinanced anymore. But in terms of home purchase, um, origination is still kind of trending higher. Um, in terms of the credit scores for originations, the median has come down, but overall still at a pretty high level. So I would characterize home builders as remaining a cyclically and tactically challenged trade, but structurally positive. So we, we can't go out and be like max bullish yet. But, you know, at some point, if we allow these cyclical and tactical headwinds to play out, we, you know, ultimately, you know, if we're looking two, three years out, I still think there's going to be a very compelling um, kind of setup. Um, but in terms of, obviously, if we are long already, what we do, yeah, I will probably cut some losses in the hope that there's, a, there's options to buy, to buy lower. Because I'm very worried that with what's happening with the mortgage spreads, even before Fed, um, before kind of Fed starts, reducing MBS holdings. If you look historically in the top left chart, I've highlighted in gray um, previous periods when the MBS holdings have been drawn down. And that's usually when we had the, wide, the, the spread widening. So it, the fact that we've had the, the, the kind of entire firm run beforehand is, is, not, is not a good sign in, in my mind. And finally, 14, a uh, question on, on the Bank of Japan and the yen. So um, again, the main thing, the point we'll make on the Bank of Japan is we are probably inherently skeptical given the flip-flop they did with the yield yield um yield curve control band widening back in 2021 which obviously we flagged in the report they've been in a stealth um taper mode for a while where they haven't been buying as much um jgbs if you look at easing trigger conditions japan doesn't really justify running super loose policy actually um so you know overall we think that once we get the kind of initial flurry of leverage players and and new players putting on the um the carry trades in japan that's going to be a good potential to for the for the yen to actually squeeze higher after that. We don't see a fundamental change in kind of Japanese domestic flow behavior. So if you look at the bottom middle chart here, 
pension funds insurance companies have actually been settling down foreign bond holdings into kind of their year, um, fiscal year end. And I'm skeptical they're going to suddenly start buy, buying a lot more because the cost of hedging out the FX exposure is still very high. The bottom left chart shows the kind of um, the, the, the implicit um, yield pickup when you hedge the FX. Um, using FX forwards, one, you know, one year FX forwards, and um, you know, as we can see that in the red line, it's 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 falling off, right? It's not it's not that attractive. So, I, I don't think Japan's necessarily in media trade, but to the extent you can get optionality exposure, it might make sense. But I do think we're gonna we're set up for quite a, a potentially a nice squeeze in the yen at some point. Um, the current kind of narrative around you know dollar yen going to 150 and you know um, you know the big policy divergence, the fact Japan doesn't have inflation. I can see the narrative, but it's not being backed up by the flow data in, in Japan that was needed for the kind of original 2012 move. So I think this is something we're very focused on right now. Um, cool, yeah. I mean, I speak very fast to run through it. Um, yeah, you ripped yeah, through Walter, it though. You, wanna, you yeah. did it. Yeah. Well, um, maybe. Yeah, Walter, I mean, what, what, what did you? I think we should go here? back to the the main slide. What's changed and talk about some of those things. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of stuff that you've talked about kind of revolves around what's happening with yields, rate expectations, and the Fed, right? So it's probably best we focus on those kind of aspects. So the the buy the rumor, sell the fact roadmap was kind of based on you know the transparent era from the I think like late '90s onwards, and on the first hike they tend to. Uh, yields tend to peak because everyone's kind of front on the Fed at this point. I guess I would kind of wonder whether things are um, maybe in a different regime now where the Fed is kind of, this is how I frame it to, to, I guess, we've talked about this before, but also to my friends, whether the Fed is more like an EM central bank now where they have no choice but to wait for inflation to peak, right? That's what you see with, I mean, we've talked about Brazil in other reports a lot. That's what you see with Brazil, right? They basically have to wait until they see some kind of relief. Is that kind of what's happening here? And is that why our buy the rumor, sell the fact is being delayed until we see some relief? Um, yeah, I guess the short, the short answer is yes. Um, I, I think maybe if I frame it a little bit in terms of, obviously we laid out all the reasons this should work. Maybe if I, if I, yeah. if I had to pick plausibly, what are reasons this might not work? I think the number one concern remains Where's the replacement bid if the Fed steps back, as the Fed steps back, right, for the long end of the curve? Because originally we envisioned this was a 04 rerun. So the commodity super yeah. cycle means, you know, the Saudis, the Russians, right? Like on top of yeah. all the Asian guys, they, they, they just recycle back into buying dollar bonds because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Um, the war, I think the war has really thrown that where I don't think we can rely on it. Like obviously there's a marginal news flow is being like the Saudis trading with the Chinese in RMB, right? This, I yeah. think it was truly shock, truly shocking to sanction FX reserves, so dollars yeah. on dollars um, in terms of safety. So I think that complicates it. Yeah. And then we don't have the pickup in the friendly countries, right? i.e. Japan, right? Japan's gotta be the main bid. If, if we go back, like that was a big, what I'm worried about is like they've already effectively blown their risk budget like already in terms of their holdings, right? If we go to Japan, you see it like this middle chart, there was a huge surge in pension fund purchases in 2020 yeah. to 21. And that was linked to like a, a regula regulation change in Japan where they reclassify foreign hedge bonds as um, basically domestic in terms of risk, risk weighting, so no risk weighting. So that freed up a bunch of um, risk budget for them to bid. And so 
you don't have that today and you don't have then the cost of hedging is quite expensive so that might not be that bit so that'd be that'd be kind of the main reason why it might not work um yeah because again going back to the to the treasury market a lot of the what's driving this is flows right it's not discretionary guys so if we look at discretionary bid and we can proxy this by essentially looking at private sector bond holdings take away all the kind of forced buyers, right? So, you know, balance funds, the Fed, insurance companies, right? If you get rid of all that and you look at the amount outstanding, that, that, that's pretty correlated with actually the, the kind of um, change in term premium as well. So you typically need like a huge surge in term premium to entice discretionary guys to come back and bid. Yeah. And so again, if we don't have that, there might, there's not, not going to be any discretionary bids. So we need some of these kind of, force buyers to come back right and then that that's i would say is the uncertainty right now um yeah so you know this is why probably structuring is option trade make, makes more sense right especially given how okay. the curve is again the yield curve caps just make sense to me yeah. just pure risk reward right i guess that kind of has an interesting implication right you mentioned you know i mean the commodity export of recycling was kind of like an important uh reason why there would be kind of a lid on on yields and if you think about I, don't, I mean, many of our clients will probably know who Zoltan Pozar is, but he's kind of talked about this a lot as this, you know, past two months as being kind of a, a regime shift for this kind of recycling, you know, of surpluses into the reserve currency, but the reserve currency might not be safe anymore. So I guess if this is a regime shift, that, that kind of has implications for the term premium long term as well. Yeah, um, I mean... I guess for clients who don't know, I think roughly the thesis is that we should think about the commodity shortages in the same way we think about money market crisis and lack of balance sheet and the kind of um, money market stresses that that um, I guess Zoltan sees in his in his day job before looking at money markets, right? So um, the idea is that when when money markets break, we basically just run out balance sheet, and when you run out balance sheet. Um, there's no, people can't warehouse things and, and the system kind of essentially goes haywire and you have to keep bundling things around and it gets very expensive to move money, right? Like this is obviously my la- like layman kind of understanding. And so there's analogous to when there's no commodities in the market that you have to work so much harder to move it around. And because of the Russian war and all these kind of commodity shortages, you're, you're, there's a lot of distortions where it's getting a lot more expensive to transport commodities around, right? Like Russians can't send it by pipeline to Europe. Right to get it to China, it's, it's extremely difficult. Right, you got to, you don't, you know, there's not the pipeline capacity, you know, to send that or you know, send the euro oils out. Again, it's all set up to come west, right? So if you want to send around to China, you're gonna to have to send it all the way around. Um, and then it take weeks more time. And as a result of that, you introduce a bunch of inefficiencies. Like you're effectively gumming up the, um, the, the, the kind of, um, the, the, in his analogy, you're gumming up the money markets in a way, right? You're gumming up the way these things work. So Suddenly, financing is more expensive. People have to, uh, you know, uh, so that increases the cost of financing. You know, all the commodity traders, right? The physical guys, they they suddenly have to draw down a lot more credit lines to get these deliveries done to all the differences. And so, yeah, I think that just, that those that was kind of my understanding that essentially we're a bit like when you have an OA style money market crisis. There's two things going on. One is you have a liquidity crisis, right? Back then it was a liquidity crisis where you know. They, um, you know, it was like breaking money markets breaking the buck, and then people don't have trust in the system, and so suddenly everything costs more, right? So analogy today would be suddenly transport and shipping costs are super high, and it's not going down anytime soon because because there isn't transport capacity, right? If you look at why shipping costs are staying high, and so as a result of that, 
the entire commodity chain is gummed up. So we're just gonna have continued inflation in costs and high commodity prices, right? This is like a effectively liquidity event that's going on. But the problem yeah. is um, the liquidity event needs to be sold by someone. So in the money markets, eventually central banks just give everyone money, right? But in the real world, how do you solve it without the geopolitical and a lot of these things? without digging on more out of the ground. I think that that's the analogy to the liquidity crisis. And there's probably also an analogy to whether it's a solvency crisis, right? So the solvency crisis would be, is there enough commodity overall to go around such that once you figure out how to reroute it, we eventually fix it, that there's no shortage of commodities. In the same way with the bank, right? There's no solvency crisis if the balance sheet is fundamentally stable. So again, I think there's probably an element of risk here where you know, without commodity super cyclists, our core views, there's just not enough commodities, right? Um, so yeah. you kind of have that on top. So you, you, you're getting kind of a, a solvency crisis with like a liquidity crisis on top that's juicing it. And then the only way you get immediate relief is suddenly we allow Russia to go back to operating as before, right? But this is what I'm really scared about. And this is your, this is like you, you were telling me about the history of sanctions, right? Like sanctions never just get removed afterwards. The US still have sanctions on Cuba, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Years later, and so like, if there's no easy, quick way for Russia back in the system, this is like a persistent liquidity crisis, right? So that, in, again, uh, it's hard to know what all the exact implications are, other than this supports the kind of structurally higher inflation regime we're in. You're going to get more supply disruption, more more shocks around, um, more shocks around uh, inflation shocks around commodity price surges. But obviously, this also supports kind of investing in commodity companies especially if they're in the right jurisdictions, right? This is going to have cause a big diversion of trade flows. So like, if you look at some of the initial sources, like, hey, Australia and Canada must be looking pretty good now in terms of supply in the West uh, for what they have, right? They can probably start extracting a pretty good premium because the West doesn't want to go buy it from the kind yeah. of pariah countries. But in turn, you know, China stuff obviously going to start buying it from, from those guys. So it's going to be like probably a, a changing of flows, but these things are probably all going to be less efficient. So you're going to have to have increased transfer costs and the premium on top for people to do it, I would I would think. So it's just inflationary. Yeah. Structurally, right. Structurally. Yeah. I guess in the past though, this type of commodity shock wasn't necessarily bad for yields because of this recycling. I mean, you know, the petrodollar recycling system. And I guess I'm kind of worried, not for me, but just looking at yields, that that could, you know, over the long term, you kind of get this drift is you know saudi arabia or qatar says ah actually i'm probably shouldn't be recycling all this surplus into us dollar um i mean that's the, like the news that came out you know over the past month is talking yeah. to china about you know pricing it in yuan and and that implies you know recycling it into chinese bonds but um yeah yeah i mean i think it's a legit legit thing right i think it was truly a shock to have just, just have them. I mean, it's not new that there's sanctions. Right? Like, there's, there's been issues like Venezuela and like, you know, yeah. there are limits on sometimes on stuff. But I think it's just the sheer magnitude of, of the Russia's FX reserves and the fact that they could just suddenly lose like more than half, right? Like, right. It's, it's just useless. It's, I think that's probably that is a, a big wake up call. I think. Yeah, I can't imagine the Chinese or the or anyone kind of in the middle is, is gonna is thinking to themselves, you know what? I want to buy more dollar <laughs> assets. It's like it's like right. that meme where the room is on fire and you're sitting in the middle going, "This is fine." Yeah, yeah. you have to do something. And I yeah. guess I guess what you were saying before is that comes through in the term premium, right? Because the the private market has to absorb absorb that excess. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paramount has absorbed it. And I think that's the problem. That's the problem. Historically, there's a very good correlation between current account surpluses for all the kind of, for the commodity and Asian exporters against yield, right? Yeah. Obviously not perfect, but if you break it by regime, they tend to be very, typically when their current account surplus is building, that's associated with long end yield, right? Like 30 years, you know, 20 years, these, these things going down. That's a very good, car, you know, that's a pretty good kind of regime. And yeah, there's, there might be, a, <laughs> it's, it's probably an open-ended question whether it's gonna be as valid this time around. Right. So, yeah. So, what would it take then for? Oh yeah, to... yeah. Oh, I think we probably should wrap because I think okay. we, yeah we probably should wrap because we're running fifty minutes. I don't know if you want to make a last point. We should definitely try and wrap up before the hour. I think. Okay, my last point is I'm glad to be at VP. I'm very excited for all the stuff we're working on. You're speechless. <laughs> Uh, cool. Uh, well, okay. Um, thanks everyone for attending. Um, hopefully it was useful. Again, I think the goal is to do more things like this. Please keep your questions coming in because hopefully those things make um, make these client calls also more value add. And um, yeah, we'll see you all next month.